0: Well, as we begin to answer the question, what is worship, which is the title for the message today, I want to give you three elementary principles that you have to understand as we approach the subject. And so, if you're taking notes, they're right there in your notes for you, and you can follow along. The first principle or concept is idolatry. Idolatry. And what is idolatry? Well, idolatry is simply forbidden worship. It's worship that should not take place. It's forbidden worship. Making the King of glory someone other than the Lord of hosts. Making the King of glory someone other than Yahweh, the God who is. And idolatry is rampant, of course. It's been rampant ever since the first man. Idolatry has been all over the place. And in our day and age, what we are doing today is very barbaric. We are, we're ancient people, ancient-minded people. Not all of us are ancient people, I guess, but uh, we're ancient-minded people in that we're, we're monotheists. We believe there's a God who created all things. We believe that He spoke to us in the Bible and we should come together and learn and grow together. How barbaric of us. We're like cavemen around here dragging our knuckles to church. And in their minds, we need to evolve in our worship, not worshiping some idea of God, not reading from some book, but we need to be humanists and seek the common good for all humanity because that's all there is. And we should come together, apart from any notion of God, to study and learn and grow in humanism without God. That is idolatry, yet in our culture, By and large, it's prized as the most pure form of worship. The object of our worship can't be us. It shouldn't be us. It's forbidden that it would be us or any other object than the God who is. And according to Psalm 24, as we approach Him, our worship must be pure. Look at verse 3 again with me of Psalm 24. It's a very important question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can go to God? Who can stand in His holy place? That's the question. And the answer comes right next in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who hasn't lifted up his soul to falsehood, the one who hasn't sworn deceitfully, he's the one. The one who seeks after God in purity, he shall see God. But we have a major problem if this is the responsibility that's been given to us, if this is the call that's been placed on us. We have a major problem in that we are born not doing this, but rather born into idolatry itself. We are born not with clean hands and a pure heart. We are born with dirty hands, with sick hearts, Scripture says, Jeremiah seventeen nine, The heart is desperately sick deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? That's our natural heart. We don't seek after God naturally. We're naturally unclean. We're naturally idolaters in need of a change. So, idolatry is the first thing you need to understand, that it is forbidden worship, and it is our natural bent as we're born into this world. We're naturally idolaters. And if we are in need of a change, if we're born into such a state, how can we be changed? Well, that's the next principle that's there on your sheet in front of you is salvation. We must be saved. We must be redeemed from our natural condition and be given a supernatural state. We must be born from above, Jesus said. And holiness is the central issue in these things. If you think about heaven itself… Jesus taught something very astounding in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. He was answering the question, "Who will enter the kingdom of heaven?" Do you know what he said? "Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, in that day and age, in that culture, in that religion, you look around and you saw scribes and Pharisees and They had their acts together. Apparently, they had no sin. (laughs) That's the way it was conveyed, of course. And as people walked around and they heard this teaching from Jesus, they could never be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus said, That's the standard. Think of the holiest person you know. You have to be holier than him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What an amazing standard! And we can't change ourselves. This is some bad news for people out there saying, okay, well, just tell me what to do and then I'll do it and then I'll become more holier uh, than that person. I'll become the holiest person on the face of the earth. Just tell me what to do. You can't do it. You've been given a standard that you can never meet. Regeneration, being born again, is the only answer. Appealing to God for a new heart is the only answer. Trusting, relying on God for a new nature is the only way that we can escape our natural idolatry. Regeneration must take place before true worship can. For those out there who don't know God, who reject the gospel, they can never truly worship because they are naturally in their state of idolatry, forbidden worship. They don't have a desire to worship the one true God. Yet when a person is born again, those desires change. Old things pass away, and all things are new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This is what we rely on, to be acceptable in God's sight, to ascend into the hill of the Lord, to stand in His holy place. We rely on God to do the work, because we can't do it ourselves. This requires what theologians call an imputed alien righteousness. When I say alien, don't think little green guy on Mars, okay? We think outside of yourself. Imputed, meaning it is something that comes from the outside, put on our account. Alien, meaning we didn't have a hand in it. It came completely from the outside. Righteousness, meaning the very holiness of God. This is what happens in salvation when a sinner believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved. That person is no longer reckoned as a sinner, but because that person has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that person is righteous in God's sight. That person's account that was a negative debt infinitely of sins is now an infinite positive amount of righteousness, and that righteousness is outside of Himself. It's Jesus' righteousness. He walked this earth for 33 years, perfectly obeying God, dying in our place for our sins, and rising again on the third day. That if we believe in Him to remove our sins, He's not only faithful to do that, but He gives us His righteousness. He gives us all of His obedience, and we are accepted in God's sight. For true worship to take place, that has to happen first. That must precede any worship, the salvation experience. But what does paganism do but reverse the order? Throughout human history, there have been all kinds of religions that have come up and died. And do you know what the mantra of all of those religions is? Do more that you might be accepted. Do more. Offer this sacrifice. Do this, do that. Check all these boxes that God might accept you. And biblical Christianity comes along, the only religion that has ever stated such a thing, and it says, come as you are. There's nothing you can do to change yourself, but come as you are empty-handed, and God will save you. You will be accepted on the merits of another. There's nothing you can do to merit acceptance in God's sight. It's given to you in Christ. Instead of appeasing some so-called God with our actions, we respond to the God who is, who saves us with the way we live, and that is worship. Scripture teaches that we must be accepted in His sight first, and worship follows. In that last hymn we sang, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, perhaps some of you were familiar with it before, and it's missing a third verse that I always have in my head when I think of that song. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Perhaps you've sung that before. Do you know what comes after those, that statement? Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend thee. If you're accepted in God's sight, that changes everything about your life. If He's been one to befriend you in the gospel. You're totally changed. You're accepted. We see this in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Uh, It'll be up on the screen. But 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told this, we come to Him, that's Christ, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Listen to this, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How are they acceptable to God? Through Jesus Christ. The life that we live and the ways that we worship God in the variety of ways, it's acceptable to God if it's through Jesus Christ. Because when you are saved, you are accepted. And then you can worship truly the God who is. It's kind of like how being in my family is a prerequisite to living as a member of my family. As my children, just don't even think of it, thats they live in my house, they eat all the meals with us, they sleep in my house, they access the refrigerator when they want to. They're in my family, they can do that. If some random person off the street came in and started trying to live his life that way, that would be awfully strange, wouldn't it? Being a member of my family is a prerequisite to going on family vacations with me (laughs) and things of that nature. We just don't let anybody live as members of our family. And what we find spiritually is that we're made members of God's family and begin living in light of that reality. We are accepted into God's household, and we start living as though we are accepted in God's household. That's salvation. It takes place first. Salvation is a precondition of acceptable worship. And those two are not the same. Salvation and worship are two very they're connected but they're different concepts. In salvation our call to those who haven't believed is it's unconditional. Again, come as you are. Your actions are essentially irrelevant because God knows your heart and everything is so tied up in the sin that you were naturally born into. Come as you are and be saved. Come empty-handed and be saved by Jesus Christ. But worship is altogether different in that sense. Worship is living a holy life. Worship is about obedience, clean hands, pure heart. In salvation, our actions are essentially irrelevant, as I said, but in worship, our actions are immeasurably relevant as we worship God because of all the ways it touches those around us. R.C. Sproul said this, I believe that the one attribute of God that should inform our thinking about worship more than any other is His holiness. This is what defines His character and should be manifested in how we respond to Him. Holiness. We are to recognize that God is holy, and our worship then should be centered around the theme of God's holiness. Daniel Block, who I mentioned earlier, I'm going to quote quite often, he says this, "'Having experienced the grace of Christ in salvation,' Does not mean that we may be casual about worship or that our cultic expressions, this is just prayer and singing and these things, are automatically acceptable to God. By God's grace, we have been declared holy. Our robes have been made white by the blood of the Lamb. But with this indicative declaration comes an imperative Be holy, for I am holy. You've been declared holy. God reckons you holy in Christ. Now worship Him in holiness. It's a song that we would sing at our church in Sedalia, Missouri. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I love that line. It's to consume our minds as we worship God, His holiness. So now as we look to define further what worship is, Holiness was given in salvation, and in worship, holiness is pursued. We're submitting to the holy other creator. And I'll give you a definition. It's flawed. There's no way to say what worship is with one sentence, but I'm going to give you some things here. Uh, You can fill this in if you're taking notes. Worship is conformity to God's standard of holiness with our whole being in accordance with His revelation. Worship is conformity to God's standard of holiness with our whole being in accordance with His revelation. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is so relevant on this matter. You know it, many of you, by heart. Paul writing to this church in Rome, I urge you, brethren by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, conforming to God's standard of holiness with our whole being in accordance with His revelation. Offering acceptable worship to God because we have been accepted in Christ. There are many things that might come to your mind when you think of that word worship. Uh, A variety of misguided ideas come into people's minds. But perhaps what you don't know is that in Hebrew, there are many different words in the Old Testament that talk about worship. And if we're looking at the one that is most translated, just worship, The word means to the ground. That's what that word means. Getting on the ground before a superior. That's what worship means. In the Greek, the word actually means to kiss. To kiss toward, to kiss the feet of. You think of Psalm 2, where Yahweh tells the nations, kiss the Son, S-O-N, to kiss Him, to be at His feet, kissing His feet. Submission and allegiance to one higher is clearly the idea here, and this isn't performance. A lot of people today, especially in America, in our bloated churches, think worship is performance. Heaven forbid. But worship is meeting God. The transcendent God who is outside and over all of creation and is also very much present in all of creation, in every area of life, being before Him, whether physically or in your heart, being prostrate before God. He is our Maker. We need to consider Him that way in all areas of life. I was talking to Melissa last night about this Christian phrase that's not a bad phrase. There are perhaps ways where it might be bad, but the phrase, God is our audience of one. Perhaps you've heard that. He's our audience of one. Now, if you're thinking of it, again, in performance terms, that's not true. We don't perform for God. Yet, God's eyes are the only eyes that matter, ultimately, right? He sees your heart. He sees what you do. He sees what you think. And that's true and good. But let me flip that around a little bit. We are also… God's audience, aren't we? God is at work, and we are to behold Him. In Psalm 95 that Tyler read for us earlier, let us come before the Lord. We are His audience. He's already doing so many things in the world, and in many ways, we're just seeing what God is doing and beholding it. And that's at the heart of worship, is to behold God and what He is doing in all of life. This happens, of course, individually. It doesn't just happen as we come together in a church setting. It happens individually also. It starts at our salvation. Which one of you, when you were saved, refused to worship? I would venture to guess that each one of you, the moment you were saved, you worshiped in your heart. You worshiped Jesus and continually, throughout this life of sanctification, as God is growing you, conforming you, to, conforming you to the image of His Son, you're continually worshiping God in different areas of life as you see what He is doing and work. We sang about Bartimaeus, the blind man, this morning. We sang his words. There was another blind man in John chapter 9, the man born blind. Do you remember that story? He was brought before Jesus, and Jesus was asked... Who sinned, this guy or his parents? Why is he blind? False dichotomy there. Jesus gives them spiritual truth. He heals the blind man. And do you know what the blind man does, according to the text? He worshiped him, it says. He worshiped him. An amazing thought. But worship doesn't just happen individually. Worship does happen, of course, corporately as we gather together, much like we're doing right now. We're worshiping God in unity in the ways that He has prescribed us to worship, the ways that He's told us to worship Him according to His Word. The gathering of God's people is a particularly special meeting. We are His temple. We've learned this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, we learned that individually we're temples of God, the Spirit who dwells within each one of us, individually. Yet in 1 Corinthians 3, we're told that as we gather together, we are a temple, and there's a particularly special time of worship that takes place right here and right now. God reckons us collectively, corporately, as His temple, and He is here in a special way. It's a supernatural event. There are, of course, many ways that Christians have thought about this through the years. You've Undoubtedly heard the term worship wars that was largely about music, the worship wars. Uh, If you come from a Presbyterian background, uh, you may have grown up singing only the Psalter. Perhaps you didn't read hymns that were written by uh, people in the last uh, few hundred years, but you only sang Psalms. If you go to an Orthodox Presbyterian church and you pick up one of their hymnals, it's actually a Psalter, and you'll uh, sing Psalm 24 set to music and they don't sing other songs. There's a disagreement called the regulative principle versus the normative principle, and we won't get into all of that. But basically, one group is saying, you can only worship God together in the ways that He has told us to. And the other group says, we can worship God in any way that He has said uh, that as long as He said we shouldn't do it, we're free to do it, basically. So those are the two sides. One side says, only if he says, do it, should you do it. The other side says, well, if he doesn't say, don't do it, then let's do it, right? And that's the tension. Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is to pursue holiness with a pure heart, and everything else will take care of itself. Pursue holiness with a pure heart. That is the answer for Christians. Not to meticulously break things down, but to pursue holiness with a pure heart following God's Word. Last night, as we were praying with the children before bed, one of them asked God that we would have a fun time today at church. And I said, well, uh, let's remember not to pray about a fun time. Let's pray what we're supposed to pray. So then he corrected himself and, Lord, please give us a serious time at church tomorrow. <laughs> Is it fun or is it serious? (laughs) That's not bad. Pursue holiness with a pure heart. That's the answer. Jesus evaluated the Pharisees' actions. Uh, You know, again, the Pharisees were seen as the holiest people. They were seen as the standard, the righteous standard among the people. But look at these frightening words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. This is from Matthew 15, starting at verse 7. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. With their mouths and with their actions, they looked like they were close to God. But Jesus says, rightly did Isaiah say, your lips move. And say nice things, but your hearts are far away from me. The answer is to pursue holiness, the holiness of God, with a pure heart. Again, from Daniel Block, he says, The Scriptures refuse to divorce persons from their actions, or their hearts from their deeds. Verbal confessions do not prove genuine piety, nor are they the main evidence of what is in the heart. Rather, actions that seek the honor of God and the well-being of others are proof of a transformed heart. Our heart and our actions are inextricably tied together, and we need to look again at Psalm 24, verse 4. It's He who has clean hands and a pure heart, He who is genuinely seeking after God. And which God? It says the God of your salvation, the God who has saved you, He, the King of glory, is the one we seek. So true worship begins with the heart that fears God and loves God. And this is the life of a Christian. Coming to Christ with a heart that fears God and loves God, being changed in that moment to have that disposition, and then cultivating that heart for the rest of your life. That's the heart of a Christian. That's what's at the center of worship. So let's speak of Christian living for the rest of the message here and talk about that disposition. Uh, true worship is found in both covenants, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are some people that think that the Old Testament is just cold ritual, just t- totally external. They were told, jump through these hoops, and so they went and they jumped through the hoops, and that was it. But that is not the case at all, actually. True worship is found in both covenants. But, of course, we have more knowledge now. The gospel has taken place. Jesus has come. We've been saved once for all through Jesus, yet we find the same elements of worship in both Testaments. Let's turn to Deuteronomy together, Deuteronomy chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, the fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and I want you to look here at verses 12 and 13, look at the worship that Israel was called to. Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting at verse 12. Great memory verse. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all His ways and love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. In these two verses, the Lord, through Moses, gives a full hand's worth of instruction. There are five instructions there, one for each finger. And the first, the principal thing is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord your God is what they were called to first. Secondly, to walk in all His ways. The pointer finger, to walk, pointing where to go. Walk in all of His ways. The middle command out of the five. Number three is to love God. Not only to fear and to walk, but to love. Fourthly, to serve the the finger that we use to show our covenant commitment to our spouse. It's for our ring. To serve God out of covenant commitment to Him. And then fifthly, last of all, the smallest finger, the last one on the hand, the last one in the list, it gets its own verse, keep commands. So many people think the Old Testament is just commands, 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 and that's it. And here in this instruction, you've got This disposition being cultivated to fear Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to be willing to walk in all of His ways, and to keep His commands. It's the heart of worship. We are to have a disposition that fears God and loves God, yet, of course, our actions are inextricably tied to our disposition. I want to revisit Psalm 95. You just stay here in Deuteronomy. It'll be up on the screen again. But Psalm 95 that Tyler read for us earlier, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Verse 7, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. This is the appropriate response to God. Go back to verse 6, please, Walker supposed to do action-wise? Bow down? Kneel before the Lord? A heart of worship will express itself in action. And this is the proper action, to make yourself low before God. If we've been saved, if we've come to know the Lord, His love, His mercy, His power, His grace, then we've been given a new disposition You were born again, you were given a new nature, and you now seek true worship. It's revealed in your actions. If you're not living life out of a new disposition, then there are some serious red flags about your soul. If there's no disposition toward God that loves Him and wants to serve Him, then there are some serious questions about what's going on in your heart. This happened in Israel, of course, time and time again. This is from Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, starting at verse 21. God makes this great statement, astounding statement. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. What a statement. And then He talks about the state they're in currently. "'You have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel.'" You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burned burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. In Israel, time and time again... True worship was outright rejected because their hearts weren't there. We see this principle that not all of Israel was saved, right? That you had physical Israel, you had the the ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, but not all those in Israel knew God. Not all of those who went to the rituals. Think of the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, year after year, seeing the annual sacrifice on behalf of the people, Not everybody attending that year after year believed. Paul talks about this in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2. Not all Israel is truly Israel. And in Isaiah's day, by and large, Israel had lost proper trust, proper fear of God. And in Malachi's day, hundreds of years later, look at this, Malachi 1.13. The prophet says, uh, God through the prophet, you also say... My, how tiresome it is, complaining about worship, talking about how tiring it is to worship the Lord. And so many of us today can fall into this thinking. We, to give you an idea, we start thinking this way when we think that God is impressed with us that we're here today and not camping somewhere. Impressed? Really? Those who do not understand God's grace, God's love, God's salvation, everything they do is just ritual, but ritual when convenient. That's not the heart of worship. The heart of worship is a natural overflow of what God has done within you. We need to repent of our paganism, thinking God might be impressed with our sacrifices, not done with a heart of worship. That is false religion that is paganism. True religion is the gospel. Being changed, having the Word implanted, rooted in you, growing, flowing out, bearing fruit, that's true worship. Loving God with your whole being. The disposition of those who are born again is that that we're uh, instructed to have in Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2, this is from Solomon. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Those are some amazing instructions, and that's worship as we draw near to God in reverence, not wanting Him to hear us nearly as much as we want to hear from Him, let our words be few and let God be magnified. It's not cold ritual. It's fervent love in response to God's love. It's true reverence in response to God's holiness. Our hearts must continually be given over to worship, that we might live to honor God in all that we do. That's worship. It's to live for God in all that we do. Let us never be casual with God or treat Him as something common. That's become quite popular these days. Perhaps you've seen a t-shirt that says something like, Jesus is my homeboy. Let us not be casual with God in worship. Let us not treat Him as something common. Remember, as R.C. Sproul said, His holiness is the prominent attribute that we must consider in worship. Let's not make Him something common. If you're still in Deuteronomy 10, look down at verse 17. Listen to this declaration of who God is. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You think worship in the Old Testament was just cold and ritualistic all the time? No. They had an understanding of who God was. He saved them. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He saved them from their oppressors so that they would be free to worship. And so you, Christian, you were saved. You were brought out of your sin. You were brought out of the sin that had you in chains. You were brought out by the mighty and awesome hand of God that you might be free to worship. And worship in all things. It's not an event on the calendar. We don't put an event on the calendar and say, Worship tonight at 7. Are you kidding me? What are you doing before (laughs) 7? Worship is all of life for the Christian. We're to do it intentionally, constantly seeking to serve the God who has done these awesome things. And there are clear New Testament examples of this think of thomas's confession as thomas felt the lord jesus because he was doubting remember and then he believed and he responds with my lord and my god do you think thomas's life was changed forever you better believe it was the disciples as they were going up and jesus was about to ascend into heaven it says the disciples worshiped him there but you know what else it says And some doubted. That verse blows my mind. The very end of Matthew's gospel, all 12 disciples, well, 11 disciples, there they were with Jesus. They've seen it all. He's taught them 40 days. And he's about to ascend into heaven. And they worshiped. Who? Not all 11, because it says, and some doubted. Isn't that amazing? There are some people in our congregation who are familiar with the term ketosis, the keto diet, that I know that a couple of beloved members have been battling with for some time and have been very successful. But when you think about ketosis, it's when you basically get your body to burn fat and yearn for fat instead of carbs, I think. That's close enough, huh? Uh, where you're avoiding carbs so your body will convert fat into ketone and you're in a state called ketosis and your body is doing what you want it to do. And you're losing weight. You're dropping pounds. The keto diet, ketosis. Well, in a sense, the Christian life, as some people go into ketosis and come out of ketosis, I won't ask you how often, Andy, but as they go in and go out depending on certain factors, um, in our Christian life, Our minds are to be set on worship, but there will be hills and valleys, won't there? There will be times when we are so intentional about our living, so focused on our living. And there are times, too, when our minds revert back to the flesh. There are peaks and valleys in all of this. And I don't want to present it like, worship is like ketosis. Just do these steps and then you're in it. No. Um, It's, of course, from the heart. It's something that God cultivates through the salvation we have in Christ. But the idea that we can be so focused. And there's some people, there are some godly men that I've met in my life who have had huge impacts on me, and it's like they're constantly in that state, that worship state. Their minds are so focused on God and so focused on serving others, and I'm so blessed by them. And that needs to be our heart, to honor God and to serve others in all things, to remain with that heart of worship. How do we do that? Well, let me give you four elements as we finally start to land the plane. You can put your tray tables in their upright and locked position, okay? Uh, Four elements here about true worship. Anything that is called worship must involve these elements. The first is fear. We know that for the unbeliever, this is fright. For the unbeliever, for the unholy one who meets a holy God, there will be naturally fright. Yet for the believer, fear isn't totally taken away, but we recognize fear of God and reverence and awe because we are no longer under condemnation as Christians. We don't have the fear of condemnation, that fright. But what we have remaining is a true reverence for God. This means meditating on Him. Have you ever just sat and meditated on how awesome God is that He is outside and over all of creation, and how amazing God is that He is right there with you and in you? Have you paused just to ponder that reality? I'm not talking about a deep dive into some theology book. I'm talking about just meditating on the reality of God. Worship involves that. Truth is another element. Approaching God with childlike trust and a willingness as we hear from Him, as we hear His truth, hearing it with a willing heart, which you have. It's yours in Christ, a willing heart to do whatever He asks, to approach Him with a heart longing for truth. In James chapter 1, verse 21, I referenced this verse earlier, it says, putting aside all filthiness, and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's a good verse. Have that in your heart as you approach God in worship. Thirdly is communication. We, of course, hear from God. We're passive in this in that we hear God speaking to us through His Word. And yet there's an active element, too, in that we proclaim Scripture. When we get together for our corporate worship, we take, uh, you know, great, uh, uh, what's the or right phrasing that I'm looking for? We, we hold in high esteem. That's a better way to say that. We hold in high esteem the reading of Scripture. We have a Scripture reading at the beginning and a corporate Scripture reading at the end. We pray. We voice our prayers to God, whether that's Verbally out of our mouths or in our hearts. And we sing. I wonder how many of you thought the question, what is worship, would all be about singing. Well, I've intentionally saved it here to the very end. Singing is just one expression of worship. We hear from God and we respond to God. We'll finish in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me there to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22, these are just some amazing verses. Together as God's temple, we really need to just revel in the truths that are found here. Hebrews 12, verse 22, it says, But you all have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Drop down to verse 28 with me. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Chapter 13, verse 5, just drop down the page a bit, or verse 15, rather. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. True worship involves communication, praising God, thanking God, declaring His truths. Our salvation brings forth this kind of worship. Remember the definition that I gave you. Worship is conformity to God's standard of holiness with our whole being in accordance with His revelation. And then fourthly, anything that is called worship must also involve acts of submission. This is obedience for His honor, honoring God with your obedience. In fear, remember, in reverence, in awe, and with truth, having these things coupled together in the way that we live our lives, all of life is worship to God. We are to see it that way as we choose to honor Him in the places He puts us. You have so many opportunities every day, don't you, to choose to honor God. And this is what we've been called to through the gospel, obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. May we never downplay the actions that God has prepared beforehand. Ephesians 2.10, these works that God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Let's never downplay those actions. God has called us to live a life of worship, and that includes actions that reflect reverence. When I became a Christian and was involved in my first church, we were um, a very still and quiet church uh, in a lot of ways. That church still is in a lot of ways. Um, Not a very expressive church, a bunch of rural mid-Missourians. Uh, perhaps you've seen the uh, <laughs> perhaps you've seen the headline on the Babylon Bee that uh, said the church was so inexpressive throughout the service the motion sensor lights went off. Um, <laughs> but what's funny is we would sing songs at that church, and just for one example, a Chris Tomlin song, we stand and lift up our hands. First line of the song. Well, we stood. And later in the song, it says, we bow down and worship Him now. No way we were doing that. If we weren't lifting our hands, we weren't (laughs) bowing down. Listen to what Daniel Block has to say. Last quote. He says, many evangelical churches resist physical prostration as an expression of homage and submission before God. This resistance represents both an unfortunate overreaction to Roman Catholic abuses and the arrogance of our culture. Our contemporary squabbles over worship rarely, if ever, include discussions of physically bending the knee before God, which may be a measure of how uninterested people are in truly biblical worship. So we're going to do something a little different. We're getting ready to sing the song that you know and love, Bow the Knee. And before we sing that song, those of you who are able are going to bow the knee together in our closing prayer. And so, again, if you are able, um, I'm going to get down here, and we're going to bow the knee before God in prayer. So pray along with me, and as we conclude, grab your hymnal and be ready to sing about it. Father, we must confess so many times of arrogance when we have not... Pursued the things that you've called us to pursue, and we've not embraced true humility for the sake of our own pride. And this is truly humbling to do something like this. I personally ask your forgiveness for not only not always having this posture physically, but not having this posture in my heart. Lord, we thank You that You are worthy of worship. We thank You that You are worthy for us to bow the knee to You. And we desire to worship You in all of life and to have this posture in all the things that we do as we seek to honor You, truly offering up spiritual sacrifices Because you are worthy of it, you deserve it, and we are obligated to show you such worship. We thank you for the salvation of our souls that was freely given. Without price, we came and we drank of the fountain of life. And now, Lord, as we seek to live a life that reflects this reality, empower us by your Spirit to be mindful of you in all things and to seek to serve our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors. In all that we do. And we pray it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.